Welcome to the Next Wave Radio Hour from WERU Community Radio, a program featuring folks around their 20s and 30s from across Maine. I'm your host, Pepin Middlehauser, and I use he, him pronouns. In this show, I hope to provide you with unique perspectives of life from the next generation working to create the future they hope to see. First up in this episode, I sat down with a local brewer in his beautiful beer garden in downtown Ellsworth. I'm John Stein. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm the owner of Fogtown Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Ellsworth, Maine. The, uh, the gateway to Acadia, as they say. Yeah, I, I'm from away, as, as so many of us are up here. Um, I was born just outside Philadelphia um, and grew up there, went to, went to school there, went to high school there. After I went away to college at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. Stuck around there for a bit, lived in Fort Collins, which was like a mecca of small craft breweries in the, you know, early 2010s to 2020s. And lived a bit in Montana, a bit in New Orleans, like so many millennials, I think, was searching for something, you know, moving around the country. Ended up working in the nonprofit sector for a while, which was hugely impactful. I was doing uh, healthcare training and advocacy for for kids mostly with type one diabetes in um, the Dominican Republic. So leading these programs and uh, training young people with type one to be peer educators and advocates for other young people with type one who didn't have the same access to education. So it was very dynamic, uh, very much like listening to local partners and hearing what they want and being able to provide them some help rather than coming in and like saying this is how we do it we know best because you know we don't know how to do things best in other cultures so learning how to work with that was really impactful and, and learning how to manage a team and work with a team i think translated to how i try to run things here at the brewery now um so like a lot of people that work in nonprofits like that, I burn out after a few years and, and moved around, did construction, um, worked on timber frame crews in Montana and uh, ended up joining back up with a good friend of mine I met in Colorado at college, uh, working on some projects with him out here. He grew up around this area and he and I started the brewery together in late 2016 and that's where I am now. Um, college seemed like it was something I was always going to do. It was that trajectory my sister went, my parents went. It was expected. I was actually, by all accounts, supposed to do, go the medical track. I was pre-med and majored in biochemistry, which turns out some of it's helpful in the brewing industry as well, um, which is great. I actually started a small and very much not legal brewing company in college where I basically learned how to homebrew, filled bottles, conscripted all my friends to like work for me for beer, fill bottles up, cap them, carbonate them, sell them, and then use the proceeds to buy more ingredients. It was just kind of a fascinating way. I was always, always fascinated by making stuff, cooking, but also the more complex science of improving home brewing and improving fermentations and trying to like understand better the bioactivity of, of different yeasts and bacteria and 
and how sometimes my bottles would explode and if I could figure out why that was, it, it was very exciting. And just working together with other other people my age and, and doing these projects was, was fascinating. We found like people were really excited to be a part of this little beer scene that I had going um, and I never thought that it would become a professional thing but I think something about the community aspect of it stuck with me and still sticks with me in like the beer garden here. So what brought you to Maine and kept you up here? Yeah, um, there were a couple reasons. Maine in general is, I feel, is sort of a vortex for, for me and for a lot of friends of mine who end up moving here of just like the, the beauty, uh, the rugged beauty uh, of it and being able to sort of think instilled in a lot of people is this like do-it-yourself kind of vibe where you know everybody up here seems like they know how to fix equipment and build things and make things uh, and that's really really appealing to me and there was something about the small town feel of Ellsworth which was not a town that I you know would have ever heard of until I <laughs> until I moved here or drove through and even still, it's easy to like drive through on High Street and miss the downtown Ellsworth. But there's something so romantic about the notion of starting something new that didn't exist yet in this small town, and like being able to walk into City Hall and, and talk to code enforcement officers who would, you know, being this young kid with not much experience, would still give me the respect to listen to this idea and say, I think it's possible you could probably start a brewery here. You know, they told me years later that they were giving me like a 50-50 chance, but at least in the in that time, it it was a very accessible uh, moment and an accessible sized town that felt like I could actually make a decent sized splash in this little pool. But that there was such a great connection to the rest of the breweries and the rest of the monsters and grain growers and everybody who's doing exciting food systems work here that that I could be connected in some way to that bigger network was really exciting. What was a big turning point in your life? Probably the decision to start the brewery was was a big was a big one. And and I can't exactly remember what the moment was, but it was some it was some moment that felt like a point of no return that felt like a challenge to myself that was like if I if I pull this trigger and it ends up not happening I will have I will have failed and that like that's probably okay in the long run but you know you can think about it and dream about it and write up plans for it but as soon as you you know take out that first loan and there's really risk on the table you know that moment for me made it real and made me feel like I only have one way to go forward and I'm gonna go forward as, as far as I can um, it, it made it a real thing and that also took off the table all of these other options which was really tough for me having traveled and lived in different places of if this is happening I'm gonna have to stick around and make it work for at least you know however many years it's been five already but those are years that I uh, I didn't quite know how much time you know people say like you work a hundred hours uh, as a business owner so that you don't have to work 40 hours for somebody else you know you hear that rhetoric but you, I didn't quite know until I got into it that 
I wouldn't have time for a lot of other things that I love to do. So taking that first plunge and limiting, or, or at least picking a trajectory was, was a big move and was, was powerful in a time where I kind of just floated about different jobs in different places, not really knowing where I wanted to be for a long period of time. A recent anecdote is uh, the guys from Blue Ox Malt House, which is one of the two, I think, uh, grain maltsters in the state, which is really important with so many craft breweries that, you know, other breweries like Fogtown were, were trying to make as many 100% main ingredient beers as possible, which wasn't possible year even like a few years ago. There just wasn't the malted grain for it, and now increasingly there is because these maltsters are pushing it so hard. Um, they've been trying to get us to go on a field trip, a literal field trip, up with them to the county for the last few years, and finally I went and joined a couple other uh, brewers from a couple of breweries in the area. We got in a van and we drove up wicked far, just like way up there in the county, uh, which was incredible during um, barley harvest season and potato harvest season, and met with some of the growers that are growing most of the barley that goes to those malt houses that eventually comes to Fogtown we make beer out of. And I'd never met any of those farmers, but like the way that we could all come together and talk about our passions and how our businesses worked and intertwined was fascinating because we all come from very different backgrounds. A lot of the farmers have been up there for like 10 generations growing potatoes and these maltsters had to convince them to turn some of their cover crops to malted varieties of barley or malting varieties of barley I should say which was kind of a heavy lift and they were able to explain like beer is this huge industry and like could you try growing some of this heritage barley for us and selling it to us to malt and we'll give it to breweries to try it was this entire collaboration that was risky and difficult and just based on like trying to do something cool because we thought we could do it within the same state um, and then we all went out to dinner together and tried beers together and, you know, we have different political backgrounds and different, you know, all kinds of different backgrounds, but we saw eye to eye on this, like the excitement and complexity of this food system, like within our, our state. What was some hard stuff that you came up against in starting this business? So we're like right smack in the middle of this neighborhood with this grandfathered in plot of land. That's a commercial building going back to like 1906. But a lot of the neighbors here have, have lived here for generations and we're the first business that's really like causing, shaking things up a little bit. We have live music, we've got events, we've got smells and coming from the brewery, we've got pizza smoke. Um, and people are not always excited about change to the point where there were some complaints lodged against us for parking issues, for noise, for everything you could imagine. And the city took it upon themselves to hear all those complaints and nearly, like very closely, would not renew our liquor license a few years back. Which was a, a wake-up call, this, this same thing that I really loved about the city, of it being like a small town where you could hear individual people's voices, kind of backfired. And it was like a few squeaky wheels really nearly ended the business. Um, we ended up compromising 
uh, a lot, which I don't think is a bad thing. You know, we worked with neighbors. We tried to figure out ways to make things better for everybody, and that was a learning experience. But it was it was tough while trying to run the business, also trying to convince the people that lived here to to let us stay. We had a lot of good response from other neighbors who came by our side and and touted our benefits to the town that they per- perceived, which was really nice uh, and helpful, and probably helped you know save us back then. But uh, that was that was a tough one. <laughs> it's. It's tough. There's a lot that I would probably tell myself going back in time, but there's so much of it that I wouldn't hear or understand without having the experience. The um, man, being a manager of of people is really tough, and I don't think it comes natural to a lot of people. I don't think it comes natural to me either. I I, I have a, you know, I, I think I can see like where I want to lead the company and I can figure that out but in terms of managing people you know figuring out how to place managers and get the best work out of them and how to to deal with bartenders and how to develop a really good uh, company culture is something that's really has always been important to me but it's not always clear how to do it and I think my instincts a lot of the time were to work with people like they were my friends, like I did back in college, and that creates a really great atmosphere until there's issues, and then it's a really hard line to draw when you need to, to you know, put a foot down or to you know, even fire somebody, which, you know, you might have to do at some point, and is really, really difficult. Um, I think that's something I would have benefited from having more experience with before starting this and I think it's something I'll continue to try to get better at for for years to come. I think really like focusing on community when creating the business has been important. I just yeah, I think I had the dream of like can I start a business and grow it and have it be successful while still maintaining those same like social tenets that I try to live by or is a company you know by definition supposed to be corporate and greedy and does it just always end up like that um so it's like trying to figure out ways to 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 fight to solidify like a mission statement um and solidify core values and tenets of like this is who we are this these are the the morals and the values of the company and here's how we're going to try to maintain them was important just having like guidelines to refer back to because it's easy to get mired down when things go poorly or equipment breaks it's it's hard you know it's easy to forget your core values and it's nice to have either people in place, partners, managers who can remind you of them, or, you know, a, a document to look back on that, that says, here's here's really what we wanted to do. Are we still following this, or are we, like, drifting from our original mission? And to keep checking on yourself like that every once in a while, I think, is, would be helpful. So how do you balance your personal and your professional life? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, 
personal, the, the personal life and the business life, the like the me time question. Yeah, I'm not very good at it. Um, <laughs> there have been, I think now that I like the, the managers and the technicians I have in place now that are running the day to day of the business a lot of the time has finally freed me up where I can like take the dog on a walk and and relax a little bit is great but it's only a pretty recent thing uh yeah it was really hard it was a really hard struggle thinking like if I don't keep working at this like the business is gonna fail like I need to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and that can turn into like 15 18 20 hour days which can get a little unhelpful um on the other side of that, that that helped me figure out how to incorporate the things I really wanted to do into the business. So like brewery collaborations with other like businesses that I love or nonprofits that I love, you know, Frenchman Bay and Downey Salmon Federation and turning those into like foraging projects where we get to go on hikes and pick berries or fruit or whatever, pick apples for our cider program. Incorporating those little bits of magic into the business and they're not always lucrative and they're sometimes like logistically messy but uh yeah the music is the same way like my you know former business partner ian and i were both musicians and it was always important it was always obvious that we were going to have music as much as possible and open mics and it was like partly an excuse for us both to have a venue to keep playing you know as like very much amateur musicians but also as a way to keep in contact with like the musicians that we love in the area. So yeah, that, that's been a difficult thing to, to extricate my personal life from the business life, but also a beautiful thing to be able to, to put like the things that are important to me, like using local, locally grown foods in our pizza program and things. It's just like, let's, let's try this out. And it's probably going to cost more than it makes in some of these cases. Uh, but it, it's fun to try and sometimes it's just like a little passion project that that makes uh, my staff and my employees feel good and makes the community feel good and that that's a win and that's like just as valuable sometimes as, as the money that comes in from it. That was John Stein, owner of Fogtown Brewing Company in Ellsworth. You can find out more at fogtownbrewing.com. You're listening to the Next Wave Radio Hour from WERU. Coming up next, I got the opportunity to speak to a relatively new addition to the Down East Arts community. Uh, so my name is Colt Neidhart. I use he, him pronouns. I'm a theater artist and executive director at Scudic Arts for All in Winter Harbor in Gouldsboro, Maine. Yeah, so I I was raised in a, a small town in Western Nebraska. Um, I grew up on a horse ranch and my parents were, were kind of all about the Wild West lifestyle. They came from six generations of Neidharts that had uh, been working the land in North Dakota and Nebraska. And so a lot of my life was kind of predestined to be a part of that and to um, have an appreciation for nature and to take care of lots and lots of animals. <laughs> my my family also was really self-driven. They um, 
they were, they were entrepreneurs in our small town. So anytime that there was a need in the community, they kind of stepped in to fill it. So at different points in time, they had a restaurant and an antique shop and an RV park and, you know, anything that you can imagine they kind of had um, and they provided. So I was kind of brought into that same mindset of being a young entrepreneur and being a, you know, a very polite young gentleman. I think from the time I was like eight years old, I was already waiting tables on Sundays in the restaurant to, you know, bring, bring the church crowd, their plate of roast beef and mashed potatoes and gravy, that kind of thing. So um, I was just kind of brought into that right away. And because my family was so involved in, in that community and in what they were doing, that always took priority. So, you know, being, I, I didn't have the, have the room to make a lot of choices for, for myself, I guess, in that way. So after school, you know, we, I, I always had chores to go do, you know, there, there was no like, go be part of the Boy Scouts or go to baseball practice or anything like that. So I, I always felt a little bit separated from my peer group in that sense, I think. So um, when I was, when I was finally old enough to start making my own decisions and to drive that, uh, that really changed a lot of what I had access to in my rural town. As soon as I got my learner's permit, I was, I was off and I was able to do, do different stuff. But um, that, that kind of became how I found theater was that it was an opportunity to build community and to, um, to spend some time with my peers and to work on projects and to have fun. And um, that about the time I was in high school was when I started being able to take theater really seriously, which ended up becoming kind of a career path for myself. I, I didn't know that it was going to end up that way, but um, that was kind of how, how things started to take shape. What was it like for you moving away from, you know, your family's way of life? I think anytime you break away from a kind of a family expectation of what you're going to do with your life is, uh, is definitely kind of a challenging moment, but I had always been different than a lot of my peers as well. And so I think that that was, that was challenging in, in its own ways. I mean, as a young person growing up in a rural community, if you have any points of difference, a lot of times they can become a really easy target for bullying and things like that. So, you know, from a very early age, I was the, the chubby little boy in the cowboy hat. And I was also just like aggressively gay. You know, it wasn't something that I could really uh, mask or hide. You know, not everyone has, has the ability to be in the closet all the time or as a choice that they actively make in their lives. And so I think that that was, that was an interesting point as well. I was just kind of from the start, I was bound to be different than my family and bound to be different than the community I grew up in. And so I, I really enjoyed being there and it was a great place to grow up, but there were always points of tension and points of difference. So um, yeah, for my family, wanting me wanting to go into the arts, which is actively different than being in agriculture. I mean, there's lots of, lots of similarities and overlap that can be explored, but um, I think that that was a, a shocking thing for them because you know, they weren't musicians or actors. They didn't, they just didn't have any inclination towards that. So for them, it was kind of like, where did all of this come from? We don't, we don't know. But uh, at the same time, my dad is this incredibly serious person. And he also has a way of really cutting people down with his words. So he doesn't say a whole lot, but what he says carries a lot of weight. And at times it can be incredibly funny. Um, so he unknowingly, he was kind of equipping me to deal with anybody who wanted to give me crap or who wanted to challenge me. I, he also was able to help train up kind of a sense of humor in me that served me really well as a, as a theater person, as an actor, as someone who wants to go through the world and help foster communication and storytelling. 
So it, it's interesting what we end up taking from, from our families and where we come from, regardless of how different we ultimately may end up being uh, from them in some kind of functional way. Yeah, college was an interesting time because I didn't, college wasn't on my radar until I was about a junior in high school and the guidance counselor comes around to start having the conversations with you about what are you going to do? And I, you know, I graduated with a class of 22 people. So all of our college plans were open and we were talking about them all the time. But knowing that some of my friends had like money put away for college that had been, you know, somebody had money put away from like the minute they were born, somebody's parents had been saving for them to go to college was such a foreign concept. I, I remember going home and over the dinner table asking my mom and dad, like it, is there money for me to go to college? Like, how does that work? And them just like almost laughing, you know, not laughing at the idea, but just being like, what money would there have been <laughs> to put away? So uh, I, I did end up going to college and it was, it was a fantastic experience for me. I loved it so much. I went three times, uh, <laughs> but uh I, I didn't know what I wanted to do at first. And so when I, when I went to college, I, I went to Shadron State College, which is a really great uh, state school in Western Nebraska. And I didn't declare a major at first. I didn't know what I was getting into. I just knew that it's, it's something I needed to do. I needed to feel a pull to that because the options, if you stayed in my, my hometown, the options were essentially to go to work at the uranium mine or to like I'd be a bartender. So <laughs> I, I felt like um, whatever it was that I was about to be getting into was going to be something that that was going to help transform me as a person and give me exposure to new ideas um, that were going to be helpful in figuring out what it was that I wanted to do. Um, I had done a little bit of theater in high school and I had this really great experience where I, I left a gas station like at the end of the first semester of my freshman year of college. I was leaving a gas station and I ran into this guy who used to, he, he was a theater professor at Shadron State, and he used to adjudicate the competitive one-act plays that we would do in high school. And he caught me coming out of the gas station, and he asked me what I was doing and how things were going. And he asked me if I was on scholarships, and he, he told me that if I had an interest in coming over to do theater, that there would be a scholarship available for me. And that that kind of became the end of it. I, I started taking classes in theater, um, in acting and directing, but also in design and technical work. And I, I found that that was really something I liked to do. Uh, being able to work in a collaborative art form was something that was really exciting and unlike other experiences that I had had. And ultimately I started during, during the summers, I started working at a summer stock theater company that was really close to Shadron there. And it was led by the same guy who was the theater professor. And I became box office manager at that theater company. And we were able, the, the life of a box office manager is nothing overly romantic. <laughs> uh, I, I spent a lot of time listening to people in the rehearsal room through the wall and they were doing what I wanted to be doing. And so there was always this kind of tension of like, yeah, I'm happy to be the face of the box office and to sell tickets and to be friendly to people. But ultimately, I want to be in the next room. Like, that's what I want to do. But um, I didn't, there was no choice in the matter. I felt like it was a proximity game. You know, it's like I needed a job and I wanted to be doing what they were doing. But if I could at least be close to it, if I could smell it and see it and hear it and know what it looked like, um, I could eventually get there myself. And, and I did. But what came from that experience of working at that summer stock company was that while the shows were going on, 
Um, I would get to hang out with Roger, who was the professor and the artistic director. He was there every night. But while the shows were going on, we would sit outside and we would eat popcorn and listen to the show over the speakers. And we would talk about everything. We'd talk about life and he would chain smoke Pall Malls. He had this really incredible way of uh, he would smoke Pall Mall non-filters and he would always have a cup of coffee in his hand. And so there was always this gestural language going on of him waving a cigarette around in the open air and talking really passionately about, about theater and about what his path had been. And he taught me a lot about arts administration, which I didn't even know was an option at the time, about like really the business of art and how companies can be made sustainable and have community impacts. And it, things started to click in my life uh, because of his influence, really kind of understanding what an important role organiza arts organizations in particular can play in communities and how they can function. So um, that, was, that was a lot of my early college experience. Um, and that, that fed through to this idea that um, if you wanna be involved in entertainment industry in particular and the, the arts at large, uh, being able to remove some sense of ego about it is really important because the best thing you can possibly do is learn how to do a little bit of everything. You need to be able to be of service to whatever is going on and no one gets to have the privilege of saying, oh, I'm just an actor or, oh, I'm just a director. Um, so that, that was a really important lesson. I think it kind of, it put me in my place, but also equipped me really well to be able to take steps into the next part of of my career so that my expectations were always kind of manageable. <laughs> After I finished at Shattern State College, I, I decided I wanted to go back to school right away to get a, to get a master's degree. I, I really thought I wanted to be a PhD. Um, and then I found out what PhDs actually do. And <laughs> I decided that that wasn't really for me personally. Um, so I, I did an MA in theater and learned a lot of great philosophy and, and background in that way. And then eventually I was able to go on to do uh, my MFA in acting at Louisiana State University, which was attached to um, an equity theater at the time. So I was able to really start doing a lot of work professionally in theater. Um, after I graduated from, from LSU, then I, I spent, spent several years uh, acting in film and TV and theater and just kind of being able to bounce around. And it, it was a great life, but it was really itinerant. I lived in eight or nine places over the course of six years. And you know, it's, it's a lot of moving and having, having your, the snow globe of your world constantly shaken up and being ready for, for what comes next. But when the opportunity to uh, move to Maine came up, I uh, COVID had just happened. I was at a point in my life where I, I was really actively wanting to settle down. And of course, like a lot of people, I was reflecting on what, what makes life worth living? What standard of life do I want to have? And in the opportunity to, to move to Maine came uh, through, through a national search for this job. And I, I was, it came about at a really great time for me. And just that, that feeling of wanting to get back to a place that was similar to where I came from, that had, you know, beautiful natural resources and has kind of a rural quality of life and a, a sense of community was really important to me. One of the stops along the way that I had made was, was working in Chicago for several years and I was doing community engagement work for a company there and it that was really rewarding, but one of the things that I kept noticing was that you could have these really meaningful interactions with people, but you may never see them again. So you don't know how it panned out. You don't know if the 
were if the work that you were doing had the intended outcomes that you you were hoping that it did. So I, I always felt like one of the advantages of working in a smaller community was that you you run into people frequently. You can see how things play out over time, and you you get a better barometer of like what people are responding to, what they care about, and. So I, I felt like the opportunity to, to come to Maine, to be in a smaller community that had, already has a great um, appreciation for the arts was, was an important opportunity for me to take and to kind of finally settle down in my life just a little bit to the point where I could at least have some breathing space to evaluate what's important to me and not have to keep going on to the next theater gig and the next thing. So yeah, that, that was kind of the process of me, me coming to Maine. I knew as soon as I, I flew out for the final interview and I had, I think it was like a four hour long interview. It was pelted with questions. It was, it was great. But um, by the time that was all done, I, I left the interview and I drove out to Scudic Point and I sat there and I had a pine cone in my hand. And I was like, it, I don't know what's gonna come from this, but if nothing else, I'm taking this damn pine cone home with me. <laughs> so, I, but it, it was a beautiful moment of reflection. And I, I kind of knew right away that it was a, place that I, I could feel good about being in if they could feel about good about having me. And um, yeah, that's, that's been about 18 months now. And I, I have no regrets about that. Uh, coming to Maine has been definitely a great choice for my, for my quality of life and for continuing to make arts happen. Uh, that might seem a, a little bit ironic uh, to, to some folks that you would go to, to ostensibly the middle of nowhere to want to build your art career. But that's kind of part of the, the lineage of visual and performing arts in Maine. You know, there's a really deeply connected tradition um, that folks have to the arts here in Maine. So it's, it's great to be a part of that. What's something that you know now that might have helped you, you know, back 10 or 15 years ago? It's a good question. <laughs> I, I think having patience, but the thing about patience is that it's easy enough to say that you need to be patient or remind yourself to be patient, but I think it's actually an active practice that you need to put into place uh, for yourself to kind of stay grounded. Um, it's really easy for our lives to get driven into the future and for us to be kind of worried about what comes next. And, you know, it, it's good to have a plan and to be thoughtful, but um, it also becomes really kind of seductive to get trapped in that energy of worrying about what comes next. So, I think really cautioning my my past self with patience would be would be a great thing, and also just knowing that uh, things will not go to plan, no matter how great the plan is and how well prepared you are, and that's actually okay because there are things that do happen that are better than what you would have imagined for yourself or what you would have picked for yourself. Um, so just making sure that you're, I guess, being being patient, and being open to um, to what can happen because. I don't know, we're, we're not always the best authorities on what we need or what's, what's right for ourselves. We can be surprised. Yeah, I think the, the pandemic was really, you know, it was, a, it was a good moment for folks to kind of reset their priorities. And I think that that was especially important in nonprofit organizations and the arts in general. Um, there's a lot of systems that have been in play for for a long time that are generally exploitive and can be can be abusive. And so I think taking the time to look at what's really meaningful and essential um, is important. So I, I hope that um, I hope that all artists have been using some of this space to to look at what their standard of life is like and what's acceptable circumstances for them to be operating in. And 
similarly for the nonprofits, you know, you can't pour, pour from an empty bucket. So um, just making sure that the choices that we're making are are sustainable and that there's a lot more that is that we're actually in control of than we sometimes think about. Um, there's a lot of systems that need to be actively dismantled and changed within our country and within how different aspects of our business sectors work. And um, I think that nonprofits are especially a great place to look at look at what that's like. There's there's a lot of kind of archaic forms in place. Even the idea of having a board of directors, although I love my board of directors, um, even the general concept of how a board of directors works and is structured is um, is kind of an archaic idea. So just knowing that it's okay to question systems, it's okay to question the way that things are, and it's okay to advocate for your own needs within those environments, even if it makes you sound, uh, quote unquote, high maintenance or difficult or challenging. It, it's good to, good to challenge those systems and, you know, let them say what they will. That's okay. You just heard from Colt Neidhart, a theater artist and the executive director of Scudic Arts for All in Winter Harbor. You can learn more at scudicartsforall.org. My name is Pepin Middlehauser, and this is the Next Wave Radio Hour from WERU. Coming up next is our featured artist. This month is a songwriter I was lucky enough to chat with while she was taking a rest stop while on tour. Yeah, my name is Sarah Trenzo, and I use she and her pronouns. I was born and raised in northern New Jersey, kind of just outside of New York City, and moved to Unity, Maine at 18 to attend Unity College. It was very clear to me I wanted to live somewhere that, I don't know that I had the language for it at the time, but now I can see that it was about living somewhere that had more sense of community and connection to nature. And that was a great place to land in Maine to experience both of those things. It had a feeling of smallness in a really the best meaning of small possible. Felt like people were very connected. It was easy to make friends, even on just a college visit. It was nestled right among the trees, right on the shores of a lake. I remember the first time that I visited Unity College, it was like freezing cold and uh, air stunk of manure. It was like early spring when things were just thawing out. And there was something really gritty and approachable that felt like it was a, a great fit for me because of those reasons. Both of those threads about community and about connection with natural systems. I mean, and then on a more practical front, I was beginning to build a career that was very related to both those things. So I got engaged with the sustainable ag world and also with the hunger relief and community organizing world. And so did some sustainable agriculture projects at Unity College after graduating and then became one of the original organizers of a project called Veggies for All, which is a food bank vegetable farm that grew mixed vegetables for a network of 10 food pantries and soup kitchens in interior Waldo County. And eventually that project moved to Maine Farmland Trust. And I continued to do that work for the next like decade. And I did that work in a way that was, you know, over the top committed in a way that I think maybe a lot of us through our twenties do work, or at least 
like people who don't aren't giving a thoughtful approach to work-life balance and overall wellness because I really I think at the time I thought man I'm doing a great job but um I was doing like a obsessive job actually and it's like capitalism even in the nonprofit realm like has great rewards for that like your project shines, you know, you can get a lot accomplished in the concrete world. But I, I very rarely took time away from work and I very rarely had the headspace to kind of do anything creative. And you know what, the, the work suffered, you know, we, we did great work through that project, but I have often thought in the years since then, there might've been something much more compelling or there might've been something much more equitable about that project or innovative about that project if if I had it and we had more of a culture of like as much as the work is important to do that also our lives are brief and our joy is important and like um just kind of learning how to like more effectively weave those threads together I was raised in a family um in like a kind of lower class, lower middle class family with significant privileges around the area of education. And so it was all, it was very present in my upbringing. You know, my parents have education beyond high school. So there, I didn't question it. I, I kind of was like, all right, well, you just go to college. And so I'm going to do that. And I also have the kind of mind where I had a lot of ease in school. Academic success came you know, very smoothly for me. So it it just felt like there wasn't, I didn't greatly examine whether I'd go to college, which of course is like, I think it's kind of great that young folks are examining that more thoughtfully right now. And there's a great dialogue about the downsides of higher education and the cost both literally and more metaphorically and that, that it's not a fit for everybody. But in my case, it just felt like there wasn't even a question about it. It was a matter of where. And I ended up studying um, environmental writing, which is essentially like Unity's version of an English degree. Could you talk more about your work in sustainable food systems? I believed I would never leave, especially when you're doing community organizing in a place you didn't grow up. And as beautiful as the community is, and as beautiful as the people in Maine are, it is hard to penetrate as a newcomer. Especially when you're like, hey, I'm from New Jersey and I have a like, I'm a little, I'm an edgy young female. Hey, you guys want more vegetables at the food pantry? Like, I really, I feel like I got my chops down about community organizing in a community I wasn't from. And, you know, just like a lot of organizers came out of the gate too ambitious and too confident and not a good enough listener. And I like, I feel like I you know, I learned my lessons um, really fast and sometimes the hard way. And I'm so grateful for that because it's given me a much different lens on like how to be a rural citizen and what does equity look like when you're doing community service work versus community organizing work and just like that whole universe. I learned so much (laughs) standing in a food pantry warehouse with like a bunch of old guys trying to figure out, you know, what's wrong with the forklift. Like it was such a good education for me about how to be an organizer and how to be like a better neighbor and a better community member and how to listen. You know, I've got all kinds of great ideas, but like it's really, so does everybody, you know. I did not grow up in a 
very musical or art-centered household. You know, I grew up going to Catholic church and Catholic school, and so there we would sing in the choir and do the chimes for Christmas and that kind of thing, but it wasn't, there wasn't necessarily a big emphasis put on the value of self-expression. But I picked up the guitar as a teenager and pretty quickly realized I didn't have an interest in learning. Um, I wanted to learn how to play songs. I didn't, I never wanted to learn you know, scales or runs or unfortunately, because that probably would be helping me right now. I wanted to just learn how to play songs, you know, and what I didn't know at the time, but it's very obvious to me is like, I was obsessed with songs. I like loved, I've always loved songs. This is like the most amazing, magical, accessible unit of expression I can think of. This is like three minutes of words where you have, that have been very carefully crafted and soundscape that is meant to move you and it's like and it you might just hear it in the gas station you know they're they're ubiquitous and so I always had a big love of songs and learned to play music and then I'd write a couple songs kind of every couple years you know and I'd go through usually times when I had something either emotional going on or I had like was going through a transition and so had like more free time I would it creativity very much requires almost boredom it requires a big open space but you might think you're bored and then you might I don't know like get a part-time job or look at your phone or I don't something you know something <laughs> but if you don't do those things you you may also make a creative work and so kind of every time I had one of those circumstances I would make so I would write songs and I went through a period of writing a bunch of songs kind of when I was 18 uh, or 19 and even played out a little bit but it really never solidified as something that was important enough to put considerable time and resources into. And I think it's because like, even though my, my whole like career was occurring in a nonprofit and community realm, we live in an economy, you know, like the way that I saw the world and, and probably still do at least, but I, but I didn't even know I did is that we're part of an economy and what are you doing and what are you producing? And even even though my mind was set on organic food for people who have trouble accessing it, that's still like so focused on productivity. And once I found the work of Veggies for All and the you know adjacent work that I did in that realm in food systems, I became a person with no free time and no desire for free time. And that really hurt my ability to be a songwriter. I did I went you know five years at a time without writing a song. And then just to like advance the plot here in 2015, so I was like just about to turn 30, I was in a 10-year long-term relationship um, with a really lovely person, but it was kind of like had probably run its course about five years before that. And I didn't notice I was at work all the time, you know, like, um, and so when that relationship ended, it was like a huge shock to my system. And it was, a, you know, I'm very thankful that it did, but I was like, unbelievably devastated and really in shock for many, many, many months. And that it was like a bomb going off. And then there's a crater. And I had not had a crater in my life in a long time. And the miraculous thing is like, stuff starts growing in the crater. And for me, it was all stuff about music or like songs, or I got obsessed with some particular songwriters that had, I'd come across their work in passing in years previous, and I just filed away like, wow, that songwriter is amazing. Like, why is that speaking to me so much? And then it's like, 
Well, you don't think about that. You just go to work on Monday or you go to work Sunday night to get a jump on Monday, you know? Um, and uh, within two, within a year and a half of that big change in my personal life, I had left that, I had hired my replacement. I had left that work. I had sold a house and was moving to Nashville, like with, you know, some of my cast iron pans in, my, in the back of my Tacoma. And that was it. I was just was like piecing out and um, trying to make a run at being a songwriter um, because I was in a huge, very productive vein of songs were coming up fast and furious. And I would think I was also really ready to just like reset this economy I had set up in my own life where the only thing that's of value is a very, very, very tangible, measurable impact in community. And I know that stuff is beautiful, but it's like, if you're like, if, you, if I'm living and dying by and, and valuing myself by how many grants did I get and how many tons of carrots did we grow and how many volunteers, it's like, it was not a holistic, I didn't have a holistic approach to my life. So along with getting like reintroduced to my desire to be an artist, I was like, oh, people have whole lives, you know, um, people can do like, can they, there were whole beings that can, we can do things that don't make any sense and don't have any point. And like, isn't that awesome? So do you have a specific song that you want to talk about, about your method and songwriting and such? Yeah, I think it probably makes sense for me to talk about food and medicine because it's kind of been like my biggest song in terms of like performance and it's its reach but also I think it kind of captures like what I think the job of the kind of songwriter I want to be like this is a good example of it and I I am very much a at times unfocused student of songwriting but I miss the mark often you know or I write a clever song or a cute song and I don't necessarily write always the song I want to write but food and medicine is like the song I wanted to write I became totally enthralled with country music even though it was something I was not raised listening to because I started doing farm work and so I would be in a truck all the time you're married to your truck if you're like a rural person and the radio's on and there's six country stations and it kind of at first I tolerated it and then I thought I was listening to it ironically and then all of a sudden I was like this is I know all these songs and I, I love every single one of them and I'm looking up who wrote it on my as soon as I got a smartphone the number one thing I did with a smartphone was look up who the songwriter of some song on the country station was like but I also have this very this big frustration with country music which is that people living in poverty are portrayed in a way that's entirely romanticized and sort of has no relationship to how they might tell their own story there's also an I mean which I won't even get into but like country music especially in the mainstream you know is super heteronormative misogynistic you know it's super white in a way that not all rural places actually are, you know, this is not, it's not a representative form once it reaches the marketplace. And the same is true about the regionality of it. I do not hear Northern tropes being discussed in country music. It's all like mama and biscuits and red dirt. And like, I know a lot of country people who they don't call their grandmother mama and they do, they're, they're, they're not eating biscuits and the dirt is not red where they come from. And those are like a lot of people in Maine, but this form is so ubiquitous that it's actually a quite, I think, a powerful organizing tool because it's in every church and every gas station and every car and you cannot get away from it. So if you happen to write a country song that is digestible by mainstream country listeners, 
and it has a message that's actually worth perpetuating, you kind of you kind of have just driven a Trojan horse through the gates of the city. And that idea is very, very, very compelling to me. And there are a lot of great songwriters who have pulled that off, probably not intentionally, probably through the magic of songwriting. You know, Independence Day um, is a great example where this is a song about domestic abuse. Country DJs believe, because it has the words Independence Day, that it is about Independence Day, the 4th of July. It gets an enormous amount of airplay on the 4th of July. But if you are a woman or child experiencing domestic abuse, you know what that song's about. And you have that moment where you go, I'm seen. Um, and you might have that moment in the bank because that's playing in the bank. And that's playing in the bank because of the power of like country music as a megaphone to reach the entire population of rural people. Anyway, that's maybe more than you wanted down the rabbit hole. But the reason I'm sharing food and medicine right now is because for me, I thought, this is a well-written song. The craft of it is fine. You know, I felt good about that. But it captures a very northern story. It's a, it's a very non-victimized, self-determining, and yet un, very much so oppressed narrator talking about things that I want to hear more songs about, like the lack of good housing stock in northern places and actually everywhere, troubling accessing healthy food and good health care, limitations in accessibility to elder care, judgments and stigma between classes. Like, it's all in there. It feels very Maine. It feels very country. It feels very, like, it just, it just for me, threads all those kinds of needles. It's the last week of the month again. And I'm choosing between food and medicine. Medicine and heat Heat and doing something with my girlfriends And that's like the, the work that I want to do. I'm kind of much more interested in, I'm still interested in, in social justice around food access. You know, I'm the, one of the co-founders of Waldo County Bounty, which is like a larger food access and food security organization that popped up during the pandemic. But my perspective on this work has changed very much where we actually need to, I mean, it's, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. We don't need to change people's minds. We need to change their hearts. Nobody tells rich men what to do there millions Got a bunch of ideas for my seven fifty Country songs make big tough guys ball their eyes out at a stoplight and like it makes them feel something. And maybe it makes them think different and maybe it makes them vote different. And so that's kind of the hope for me about, you know, my transition out of boots on the ground, organizing work, it's so valuable. My whole heart wasn't in it. You know, I was performing in that realm. I so much rather would shift gears and actually be a performer and let myself perform in that way and hope that some of what I create can make someone feel differently, can make someone if they've never been on SNAP or EBT, they can hear this narrator who's living with SNAP and EBT and understanding that she's receiving judgment of her neighbors while she's utilizing systems that are set up to support 
people who need support. A wisdom that I've just started to understand, you know, well into my 30s is that, and it'll sound maybe obvious to most people, but it was not to me, is that what you enjoy doing really matters. Like where you are lit up by an idea or a certain type of work or a certain hobby, like you know, that's like a, a great navigation tool to follow. And that is not something that I was really taught in my, you know, childhood, in my schooling, even though, you know, even at a really progressive institution as Unity College was at the time, there are just, there's so much more opportunities in every day to pay attention to like, what is lighting me up? What am I curious about? What am I excited about? And of course, if we follow that form of navigation, we're going to enjoy ourselves more. And that's great. But that's not even the point. It's just like I think our places of our individual places of brilliance are able to be found if we can follow something as silly as, oh, my gosh, I'm like obsessed with country songs. I love these. I want to like analyze them out. I, I want to like talk to my friends about them. And I'm, you know, I want to be just diving in like you know, this silly three-minute song about a heartbreak? Well, yeah, because everybody's had a heartbreak. And when you have a heartbreak, hearing somebody express it in a way that makes you say, that is exactly how I feel right now, and I feel a tiny bit less alone, that somebody else one time felt like that too, and they, like, wrote a song about it. Yeah, so I think following what excites us, what's fun to us, to really find our places of brilliance, that I, and I think that's connected to productivity and how we impact our world. For sure, it cannot be that we need to do a bunch of work that's uninspiring and we hate and we're slogging through to like create a better world. Like I don't believe it for a second because that's like old world thinking. That was Sarah Trunzo, a songwriter and community organizer. You can find her music in most places like Spotify and Apple Music. And you can find more information on her Instagram, at Sarah Trunzo Music. My name is Pepin Middlehauser, and this has been the Next Wave Radio Hour. I want to give a huge thank you to my guests, Colt Neidhart, John Stein, and Sarah Trunzo. Thank you to the Maine Community Foundation for supporting this program. Our theme music is by Zeke Sakaridis. You can find the archive of the show at weru.org and wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email nextwaveradio at weru.org. Next Wave Radio Hour airs on the fourth Thursday of every month at 4 p.m. Until next time, stay safe out there.